Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Daniel High, your host of The High Road, a new podcast about one doctor's perspective on all things related to medicine. In each episode, we'll be pulling back the curtain on unique experiences and thoughts that doctors have that a lot of non-medical folks want to hear about and learn from. We'll view most topics through a medical lens and explore various other areas of life, including faith, finances, ethics, and whatever else you, our listeners, want to hear us weigh in on. So, let's begin. Okay, well, welcome back to The High Road, where we take a 30,000-foot view of medicine's connection with other issues in life. And uh, as I like to say on The High Road, we love quotes. So this week, you're going to get movie lyrics. And these lyrics are from Connie Francis, 1960. Because everybody's somebody's fool. Everybody's somebody's baby. And there are no exceptions to the rule. Yes, everybody's somebody's fool. Several other musicians recorded that song over the decades since then. I'm not going to tell you right now why it is I picked that quote until the end of the podcast, but I hope that you'll see how it all holds together. So this week, I wanted to spend a little time talking about fasting. And um, this is the season of Lent, and certainly the Christian community is in some places, doing fasting. And uh, pretty much every culture around the world, every traditional culture has always included fasting as an important part of life. Um, Other religions and cultures, it's not just Christianity by any means. Uh, In fact, I think at this point, I'd probably say that Christians, at least in the West, probably fast less than the other religions that that pursue this, including uh, Islam. Of course, they have the uh, Ramadan fast from sunup to sundown. Buddhism, uh, Judaism, Taoism, Jainism, Hinduism, all of these uh, faiths practice fasting. And then there's plenty of secular reasons for doing fasting, health reasons. And there's a lot of research that's going into this. So I wanted to spend a little time just uh, kicking around that topic and putting it out there for people to consider. So uh, probably the most uh, accessible path to thinking about fasting is uh, intermittent fasting, and uh, that's become a little more popular nowadays. But in one sense, obviously, all fasting is intermittent unless you're going to starve to death because you're going to always end your fast at some point. Um, But we'll come back to that, uh, that conversation here shortly about different ways of fasting. So just uh, the simplest ex- uh, explanation of that is to say fasting is deliberately choosing to not eat. And there are a lot of, for a period of time, and there are a lot of different ways to do it. Just at the start, I'll say that I personally do some intermittent fasting and didn't try that until a few years ago. I've also done some 24-hour fasts on occasion, and I can talk a little bit about that shortly. So I do... Uh, recommend it as a health practice, if not for a uh, spiritual practice. I'm going to say right up front, there are some risks in particular people, particular people groups and populations, uh, children and adolescents, uh, generally not recommended, people who are pregnant, breastfeeding, people have diabetes, uh, certain medications, and then uh, folks with a history of eating disorders, that's a an area of uh, concern. But... um. I would just say that 
we live in a culture that tells us if you have an impulse, you need to immediately satisfy that impulse. If you want to eat something, you should definitely eat. Remember the uh, logo on a vending machine many, many years ago, maybe when I was a child, that says, don't go round hungry. And I think the point of that was you should definitely hit the vending machine as soon as you feel that first pang of hunger. And some of us have actually been taught that any kind of discomfort is something that needs to immediately be attacked with a vengeance and removed, whether that discomfort is hunger or grief or uh, even things like um, what honestly is greed, which <laughs> drives our, our shopping instincts, um, pretty much any kind of impulse. Uh, in fact, some folks have been taught that it's actually harmful to delay an impulse, that it's unhealthy. Uh, certainly um, a culture that is like ours where we have access to having almost every impulse immediately gratified is um, not very comfortable with delayed gratification. And yet there's some interesting physiological arguments for delaying gratification. One of the things that controls, I wouldn't say controls, but strongly influences behavior, not just in humans, but also in other creatures, is the neurotransmitter dopamine. There are other neurotransmitters that we can talk about another day, serotonin and GABA and epinephrine and epinephrine and uh, lots of other different ones that that manage our behavior and thoughts and, and physiologic responses. But for each of those neurotransmitters, there's a receptor that is literally designed almost like a lock and a key to respond to that neurotransmitter. And there's certain parts of the, of the endocrine system that produce the neurotransmitter in a given case. So pretty much uh, most, if not all, biological systems have feedback loops on their, on their regulatory systems, and there are inhibitory feedback loops, and there are positive feedback loops. A good example of this will be your ears with hearing. There's parts of the brain that are designed to regulate the intensity of your ability to hear. And this is the reason why if you go to a rock concert and you leave the rock concert, somehow you can't hear very much for a while. You might hear ringing in the ears, but uh, which is a sign of, of actual damage to your to your hearing at a short, hopefully short term. But the reason why you don't hear as loudly right after you've been around a loud noise is because your brain literally downregulates your hearing to turn down the volume. And it takes a while for the volume to get turned back up. So that's an example of an inhibitory feedback system. There are similar things with our vision, which is why when you go into a dark room, at first, you can't see anything. Shortly, your eyes dilate and become accommodated to the low light situation, and now you can see. Walk outside into a bright sunshine, and you have to squint your eyes because the inhibitory response takes a while to kick in. And this is just the way our biology is designed with these kind of feedback loops. A more practical example is if you've ever been to a Mexican restaurant, which I love, and eat something that's very spicy, which I love, 
it's important not to do that as their first thing that you eat at the meal because you will not be able to taste anything else for the rest of the meal because it will overwhelm all of your taste buds. So as we think about the issue of fasting and even just the larger issue of delayed gratification, there are some biological reasons why these things can be helpful. People who do fasting will tell you, and it's been my experience, that you do taste your food better, you enjoy your food better when you go back to eating. I think maybe there's a neuroreceptor upregulation that's happening in that situation. There are lots of things that we enjoy doing that can actually become tiresome or boring even if they're repeated over and over again because the way all of our receptors work is they get downregulated. So if you keep hitting that same receptor with the same stimulus, the receptor will be downregulated. The most severe example of this that I'm thinking of right now is in people who are addicted to drugs. If you do a functional brain scan in these folks, you'll see that their dopamine receptors are less responsive than in another person who is not addicted to drugs. And the saddest thing to me is when you look at a person who's had years of addiction, they have a permanent loss of dopamine receptors. They literally disappear. And what that means is that even after that person, it becomes cured of their addiction or manages to move into into remission from that, they still don't have the same ability to enjoy the other things in life that are designed to give us a dopamine hit. And I think that's a, a really tragic thing, that a person would have to live with that for the rest of their life. So as I think about the area where we probably all of us are a little bit of an addict is our smartphones. Literally every little ding and every little pop-up noise that our smartphone makes gives us a little dopamine surge. And indeed, the people who designed the software and designed the hardware, they know this. And all that links to ad revenues and traffic counts and we are literally being uh, played by our technology, or at least by the people who've designed the technology. They, they understand more about our nature a lot of times than we do. And there's uh, actually a TV series on this that addresses that uh, concern. So when you think about other things that give you little dopamine hits, they're eating a tasty meal, and certainly you can have overindulgence with food. Um, Sex is something that gives you a dopamine hit. Um, Feeling love and affection for another person. Uh, Petting my cat. I'm a cat fan and uh, I definitely feel that when I get to enjoy hanging out with my cat. Uh, Things like helping others, exercise. And then on the more negative side, addictions like uh, gambling or excessive eating, even things like violence and murder and stealing can give people that same hit. And uh, certainly when you think about the, the idea of the dopamine reward center in your brain, it really is designed to reinforce 
behavior that enhances survival of the organism. And this is true whether you're a human being or an animal. If you're an animal who's trying to survive, you're going to find that food source and you're going to get that dopamine hit. And it produces a tremendous reinforcing behavior pattern. That's the thing that makes the animal go back to that same watering hole or that same source of food. The black bear that hit your bird feeder is going to come back to that again and again and again and again. And that is an example where that's a maladaptive behavior, although really it's the human being's uh, interaction with the bear that creates that behavior. Because if it's functioning the way it's supposed to, the bear goes back to the wild honey supply or he goes to eat the, the food that he's found in the woods to survive. So that's an example of why that system is there is to literally keep animals from dying of starvation. Um, reproductive urge, you know, pushes animals to have sex so they can have offspring, survive the species. All of those things are, are important. And all that goes back to dopamine among other factors that cause creatures to repeat patterns and reinforce patterns. So I want to turn back a little bit and think about the issue of fasting and uh, just as one example of a behavior that I think can be helpful. There are people who say that fasting lowers the resting insulin level. If you think about some of the metabolic problems that we have in our society is uh, certainly diabetes. Short of diabetes, it may well be that the majority of Americans anyway, as they move into middle age, they may not have diabetes, but they definitely have impaired processing of sugar or they may have prediabetes. There's other terms for it, dysmetabolic syndrome, syndrome X, things like this that feed into uh, cholesterol problems, triglyceride problems, blood sugar gradually rising through the years. And certainly with this is more related to the type 2 diabetes, which may s- surprise people to hear that type 2 diabetics actually have high circulating levels of insulin, which comes from the, the pancreas, certain cells in the pancreas. The insulin is high because the body is resistant to the effects of the insulin. So the pancreas sort of works overtime to create more and more insulin to try to drive the blood sugar down. It does that by moving the sugar into the muscle cells and into the liver by means of insulin receptors. And those also get upregulated and downregulated, just like the other receptors in our bodies. So one of the theories about why intermittent fasting or fasting in general might be helpful is that it seems to lower the circulating insulin levels. Certainly type 1 diabetes, which is the juvenile type, usually is more of an autoimmune problem or an infection consequence problem. Those are the people that go on insulin at 12 years of age or 15 years of age or 8 years of age. And type 1 diabetics are typically very skinny. They literally lose weight before they're diagnosed and the weight literally kind of falls off of them as a type 1 diabetic, they have low fasting, low insulin levels, or even almost no insulin, which is why we put them on insulin immediately. So when you treat type 2 diabetes, 
we usually have medications that help improve insulin sensitivity, but certainly at some point it gets to the point where the body is so resistant to insulin that the only option we have left for medical treatment is to flog the insulin receptors with higher and higher levels of insulin dosing, which is where you get people that that have to take insulin. Certainly treating of type 2 diabetes is greatly improved with exercise that helps to move the blood sugar into the muscles. It's helpful to have weight loss. It's helpful to eat meals that are low in carbohydrates. All of these things are important when we go to treat type 2 diabetes. So when you circle back to the issue of fasting and lowering that insulin level in the body, that helps to improve insulin sensitivity, which is the underlying cause for type 2 diabetes. When you have high circulating levels of insulin, the metabolism is actually running somewhat in reverse. It actually promotes storage of fat rather than mobilization of fat. When you have low circulating levels of insulin, it's the signal to the metabolic system that it needs to mobilize fat and use that to turn back into sugar, which the, which the liver does to help keep your brain and muscles funded with their amount of sugar that they need. So intermittent fasting is thought to reduce those fasting insulin levels, which in theory will help with improving insulin sensitivity and also maybe help with weight loss as well. So I want to spend just a moment talking about different ways of doing intermittent fasting. One of those is time-restricted eating, which is where, for instance, you might fast for 12 hours a day and then eat for the remaining 12 hours, or you could fast for 16 hours and eat for eight hours. And there's different theories about how you would schedule that. For some people, they might say eat breakfast and then stop eating by mid to late afternoon. And the logic of this is that the body gets a long period of time to not have to process calories. And that can be a helpful thing to do with managing cholesterol as well. Sometimes that can result in weight loss if your total calorie intake is dropped just a little bit. Some people will start eating only in the early afternoon and then continue eating through the evening and then stop. There's also a 5-2 diet where you could eat normally for five days of the week and then restrict your calorie intake to five or 600 calories on the remaining two days. That's one strategy. Uh, then there's the 24-hour fast once or twice a week strategy. Some people will do alternate day fasting. That seems a little extreme to me. And uh, there's all different ways of doing it that people have promoted over the years. So as we think about this issue of fasting and think about the biological basis for why that might be helpful when you consider the neurotransmitter regulations, then when we broaden this thought out to other areas of our life where we are sort of driven by our dopamine drives, sometimes in good ways, as we mentioned earlier, capacity to love other people, to help others exercise. Um, these are 
things that we would regard as as uh, life enhancing behaviors that are motivated by dopamine, and then obviously the behaviors that we find problematic, like smartphone addiction or road rage or whatever it is, the things that people do that are not helpful. I think it's important to have a certain amount of humility here and recognize that we're all of us driven by drives that are stronger than we might realize. This is why I picked the music lyrics at the beginning of this podcast here where she says, everybody is somebody's fool. And so I would challenge us as we think about this to consider whose fool are you? Recognizing that in some sense, we're all drug addicts (laughs) because we're all chasing that high. And I think it's important to consider maybe working towards chasing a high that's more helpful in terms of where you want to go with your life, in terms of what your values are. It's important to recognize that changing patterns can be challenging. It doesn't happen easily. Addiction, maybe not to illegal drugs, but addiction to the patterns of our life, to the way we react to other people, our triggering behaviors, our trauma responses, the things that we demand, the things that we think we deserve, All of these are potential traps and areas of addictions for us, but they can be changed, and it takes time to do that. It takes consistency. As they used to say, incremental changes over time, it actually helps to form new neural pathways and to begin to prune back the old pathways that are driving behaviors that we really are not finding to be helpful or congruent with what our values are. I would say that it's important to be compassionate with yourself and with others as we try to move in better directions. Things do take a lot of time to develop. It's important to take small steps towards growth. It's important not to shame ourselves and others because shame doesn't typically produce lasting behavior. It can produce short-term behavior, but it doesn't stick. And we've talked before about the power of love and how important that is. I think love love for others, love for God, love for even ourselves in the right way is necessary to move in a direction of what uh, Dr. William Glasser called positive addiction in his book many years ago. He talked about that. I think that it's important to, as I say, be compassionate with ourselves and others and to realize that things will take time. And I'll end with a quote from the Christian tradition about the issue of just a raw obedience versus duty versus sorrow and pain in how we pursue things versus a a pursuit of joy and hope and and love and confidence, which is obviously a better path and will ultimately result in better outcomes for most people. And that comes from the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 16 to 18. And he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So I think that really puts the issue of discipline and ideals and self-improvement, how to help other people move in a better direction. It puts it in a new light that's not based on shame or fear or uh, hypocrisy or desire to impress other people, but based on love and based on joy. And uh, I would just encourage us as we think about making good changes, whether that's fasting or trying to uh, put away our smartphones and say no to the demands that those take on our relationships, the distraction that that creates in our homes with our children and our spouses, all the ways that we behave like addicts in our life. And there's many more of those areas other than just food and smartphones. I'd like us to think about deliberately stepping away from those things and letting those receptors upregulate so we can really enjoy our lives and not be driven to distraction by the things that are around us. So I appreciate everyone listening to our podcast. I hope that you will let me know what you think. If you can think of other areas that you're struggling with addictive type behaviors or compulsive behaviors, or if you've found things that have been helpful to break free of those areas in your life, I'd love to hear about those. Maybe we can do some additional podcasts on those ways of coping and managing, ways of improving our lives. And certainly always want to hear what people have to say. We want our content to be helpful and encouraging. Thanks for listening to the High Road Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel High. Be sure to leave me a comment, a review, and don't forget to subscribe to The High Road wherever you get your podcasts.